Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our Father, these are seminal passages in the Bible that clarify what the mission of the Lord Jesus is, which is the foundation of our mission, what we are to do as a local church. Help us to hear and heed what we are taught and to do what it says. For Jesus' sake, amen. I said to the 
elders of the church on Wednesday that this short series that I have preached over these last two Sundays and then today in Luke chapters 4 and 5 have struck me and challenged me as much as any short series has. That's perhaps an unusual thing for me to say, but it is true, and it's important that uh, I say that to you as well as to the elders. It's not my thing. It's not my idea. And what's challenged me, if anything, has been what God's Word says. That's the important thing. I think what's struck me is not only the, the words of God here, but the situation we are in as a church, as we come out, albeit slowly and fitfully, of the situation we've been in for the last 15 months, it does strike me that almost everything we do as a church has had to stop. So we're excited today to have two singers and a Bible. <laughs> and then we'll be, more and more will come back, but so much of what we've had to do is stop. But speaking God's Word, teaching God's Word, preaching God's Word, explaining the gospel, speaking the truth in love, has multiplied. More of it has happened, partly because we've been able to come more regularly to small groups or possibly on Sundays. And uh, over the last 15 months, perhaps more than any other 15 months in my time as minister, the church in all of the right ways has grown. Kath mentioned that, humanly speaking, Redeemer should not have thrived or established, baptized people, seen people grow as Christians, seen people give generously to sustain the church. And when all you are left with is the Word of God and a voice, you're struck by the fact that it is speaking God's Word that saves. It is speaking God's Word that changes people. It is speaking God's Word that shepherds and cares for people. It is speaking God's Word that sustains a church. It is speaking God's Word that grows a church. Now, I want you to reflect on that and mark that lesson, in a sense, from our circumstances. And now we find ourselves in a key section in Luke's Gospel. Long before we get to our mission, which comes in chapters 9 and 10 and so on and so forth, which will be the subject of our small groups this year. But here we are back at the foundations of the building. What is Jesus' mission? What does He do? What is His priority? What does He, what does he constrain to do and not do? Now, in chapters 4 and 5, 
Jesus' mission is explained, then confirmed, and then demonstrated. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the previous talks just to go through the logic of what Luke is doing, explaining, confirming, and demonstrating. And if we were to summarize what Jesus' mission is, what Luke says it is, what Jesus says it is, not what I say it is, or what Chalmers thinks it is, that's not important. Jesus' mission is to speak the good news that through Him our sins can be forgiven. It's not the only thing Jesus does, but it is clearly His priority and His focus. Now, let's just pause there and run all the way forward to where Luke will get to what is our mission as a church. Back in 1974, I think it was, the first global congress on world evangelization was held. They're called the Lausanne Conferences. And Billy Graham was the speaker in the opening night. You can listen to his talk online. I'd encourage you to do that. It's very inspiring, it's very moving, and it's terribly simple. Billy Graham said that amongst all the things the church of Christ on the earth can do, the church's one task is to proclaim forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ so that men and women and boys and girls are safe for all eternity. And how does that happen? When the Word of God is spoken. And if you think of the church in the Western world today, and as we think of our own church family, are we convinced in mind and heart and action? We might be in our minds, but is it translated into all that we do? Are we absolutely convinced? that it's speaking and teaching the Word of God and the gospel that saves, changes, shepherds, sustains, grows, unites, equips. Well, that's what I and others are praying through And I want to encourage you over the summer to really pray uh, for that. Now, in chapter uh, 4, verse 14 to 532, there are four connected episodes, and you can see them in your Bible for the first time. So, we start with the calling of Peter, James, and John as disciples, 
5, 1 to 11. Then Jesus heals a man full of leprosy. 5, 12 to 16. He forgives a paralyzed man. 5, 17 to 26. And he calls Levi to be his disciple. Now, these episodes taken together, they're one unit. We got halfway through it last week. We just couldn't do it all in 35 minutes. But they teach us, they teach us these five things. Let me just run through them. The, last two, the first two we did last week. They teach us about the power of Jesus speaking. Secondly, they teach us about the priority of Jesus speaking. Now, don't, don't hear the word priority as sole concern. It doesn't mean that. It means priority, main thing. The power, the priority of his speaking. And what we'll look at now, three more, the good news he speaks. So, Luke comes back again to remind us what the good news is. The good news is simply a synonym for gospel. Gospel means good news. And then the purpose of Jesus speaking, and finally, the people Jesus speaks to. So, the good news he speaks, the purpose of his speaking, and the people he speaks to. Now, we're going to not run ahead to the application. That will come in Luke, but just think through in terms of what we are as a church. What is it we speak? What is the purpose of our speaking or teaching or preaching the Word of God? And perhaps most challenging to us as a church in our cultural homogeneity, in our social sameness, although that is changing, who are we speaking to? Now, the good news Jesus speaks. Now, please don't switch off at this point and say, I know the answer. One of the great strategies of, of the devil, I think, <laughs> small child. One of the great strategies of the, the devil is to say, okay, they understand it in their head. I know it's not made it to their heart and their lives, but let's just keep it in their head and let's move over the verse. Let's just move on. Do we understand in our hearts and in our lives that the good news or the gospel is that through Jesus, people's sins can be forgiven? I think Billy Graham would say in Lausanne in 1974, if the church really, really understood that, that's what the church would do. Now, Luke's description of the, the paralyzed man coming down through the roof is dramatic. The only way his friends could get him to Jesus, such was the busyness, and there would certainly be no social distancing in that room was to cut a hole in the roof and let him down. That's 
not so much about their ingenuity as their love for their friend and their desperate, desperate desire to have him healed. And we've got to get ourselves into a state of mind that were we there, were we living through these days when Jesus walked on the earth, if I had a sick friend or relative, I would be bringing them to Jesus. And you would be. And the man comes down and he lies at the feet of Jesus. What will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Now, don't get in your mind to the answer. Feel the tension and the struggle and the divine humanity of Christ who has just put his arm round a leper. What will he do? What will he do? Well, Jesus looks at the man in his physical plight, and he thinks on all eternity, and he says these extraordinary and striking and compassionate and convicted words that were not easy for Jesus to say in face of what he saw any more than they are easy for us to say in face of what we see. Your sins are forgiven. This man had grave, great needs, but this need was his greatest. And there is, as we get to know Jesus in the pages of Luke, no lack of compassion in the heart of Jesus. Indeed, quite the opposite. It is the most compassionate thing he could do. Why is sin our greatest problem, and what is it? Sin is our greatest problem because it alienates us from God. God is holy, perfect, sovereign, omnipotent, awesome, pure. As humanity, we are sinful, estranged, alienated from God. And the consequence of our sin is eternal. Eternal judgment. Every time Jesus saw someone or encountered someone when he walked on the earth, Jesus had all of eternity in view. He had forever in view. And he dealt with people on the earth for eternity. Sin is our fallen human nature. It is 
not loving God. It is not loving others as we love ourselves. It means living independently of God. It means disobedience of God, even if we say we love God. Do you, can you, love God with every part of you, every synapse in your brain, every impulse, every thought, every action, every word you speak? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you ever walk past somebody in the street who is in need? Are you ever selfish, thoughtless, harsh, angry, without righteousness? We are sinful through and through. And there is nothing we can do. What could that man, as he lay on his mat at the feet of Jesus, do? Nothing. What could the thief who hung on the cross beside Jesus do? Nothing. What can you and I, in our middle class, sophisticated, professional lives, do to merit the righteousness that Almighty, Holy God says, it's okay. Nothing. God alone can forgive our sin. Which is what the Pharisees say to him. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Eric read it spot on. There's spark, there's antagonism, there's hostility, but there is accuracy in their question. And the Lord Jesus responds, and remember Luke is writing to give us certainty. Just, just listen to the directness and honesty and logic of Jesus' words. In order that you may know for certain that the Son of Man, that's from Daniel 7, it's a big, big divine human title for the Messiah King from Daniel 7, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you in your paralysis, get up and walk. And he got up and he walked and he left the building. Everyone was amazed because before their eyes is Jesus Christ, who alone, as God, is able to forgive our sins. What did that man who was healed that day go on to do? We have no idea. Did he dance? Did he run? What would his family and friends have made of it all? I hope and pray 
I don't know, but I hope that as he grew old and came near to death and quite plausibly lay down again on his mat, he would say to people, Jesus healed me that day, but he did it to show that he had authority to forgive my sins, and my forgiveness will mean that I will be raised from death to life, and I will be with Jesus forever. Yesterday, two of us as elders got to spend some time with a dear man in the church family here who is very sick and dying. And one of the last conversations he had with one of his neighbors, he asked him a question to his neighbor, what are, what are you going to do when you die? To which his neighbor responded, I will lie in my bed and give thanks for the good life I have lived. To which our friend said, I will lie in my bed and remind myself that I am a wretched sinner and that Jesus is a wonderful Savior. And what a difference. What a difference. You see why speaking the good news that in Jesus forgiveness of sins that sets us safe for all eternity is the church's mission in the world. And these decisions to make this our priority, which for us means teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, speaking the truth in love, equipping people to teach, speaking the gospel. You don't need to have a Bible to read it to explain the gospel, but the gospel is what the gospel is. It is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus making that one's priority as a church comes with cost. Because for every response, there is the response that Eric read, hostility. Particularly in the comfortable, settled world of the West, where coming to terms with one's sinfulness is hard. It comes with cost. It is opposed. And there are so many needs around us that it takes real conviction to hold fast to what Jesus says is the main thing. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Why, though, does he? Because he is merciful. 
because he is loving, because he is kind. How merciful, how loving, and how kind he gave his life on the cross. How do you receive forgiveness? By God's grace, through the Holy Spirit. How did you, Colin, you're sitting in my eye line, don't answer out loud, I'll answer for you. How did you receive forgiveness? Because the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin when you heard the gospel from someone. When it was spoken to you. Or when it was preached or read. It comes through words. As we're hearing it now, Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins through his death. He offers you the answer to your greatest need. He offers to you something of eternal significance. He offers to rescue you from a terrible situation. Why would you refuse? Because you don't think you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. Because you are self-righteous in some way. That's the only reason you would refuse. But listen to what Jesus says. But that you may know that I have authority to forgive and to speak the need of forgiveness. Look what I have done. Get up and walk. And he got up and he walked. And Luke writes it down so that we might be convinced. Verse 25, immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I love it that he picks up his mat. I don't know why he picks up his mat, but he does. And amazement seized them all, and they all glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so have you, so have we. We have seen, written in Scripture, extraordinary things. The good news Jesus speaks, the good news we are to speak, the purpose of Jesus speaking, and time is always against us, the purpose of Jesus speaking, verses 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. The purpose of Jesus speaking about forgiveness, let's not miss the obvious, is to forgive people. What happens when you hear and respond to the message of forgiveness? You're forgiven. The slate is clean. Maybe that man that our friend spoke to might actually think about what he really will think when he lies on his deathbed and say he comes to faith in Jesus and realize he is a sinner in need of forgiveness and trust in Jesus. The whole of his eternity flips at that point. That moment he is forgiven. How on earth can we be forgiven now? Because our forgiveness is based 
and achieved all by Jesus' death, which has happened in history. All you need to do is respond. The purpose of Jesus speaking forgiveness is to forgive. And also to call call people to be his followers. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Notice that following is also an obedience to Jesus' word. When someone is forgiven, they get up and follow. Forgiveness always leads to following. Forgiven, following. A forgiven person is someone who follows Jesus out of thankfulness, love, and loyalty, zealous that others will come to follow Jesus. But there's more than that. Forgiveness and following is in response to the Word of God, but the Word of God comes with supernatural power. Do you really think that Levi and tax collectors in the ancient world were a rum lot? They really were. You've got to take my word for that. A bit on the side, a bit for me, a bit for the government, all that stuff. Do you really think that Levi got up that morning and said, Mrs. Levi, I'm going to turn over a new leaf? I just think I need to sort out my life. I don't think for a minute that happened. He went to his tax collector's booth to fleece people as normal. Jesus came along and he met him. Like in a church service or a funeral or a wedding, you met Jesus and his word and suddenly that call, follow me, comes with a grip on your mind and your heart and that is the Holy Spirit. No human preacher can ever manufacture the kind of response that would turn your life right around. Right around. The power of Jesus' word. And that's why, as a church, we need to absolutely trust God's word and speak it and teach it, because God's word has the power of Jesus, because he inspired these words to be written. Follow me. And he did. What else did Levi do? He had a big meal. Verse 29, he made a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. That's a little micro picture of a local church. Call it a house church. What's a church? A company of forgiven sinners having fellowship together. That's exactly what we're doing now. I mean, who are we? What a motley bunch we are. What unites us? We're forgiven sinners. No matter if you've got a PhD or you don't know what PhD means. No matter in the end, is it? When I worked in London, one of my colleagues told me of the early days in his ministry in a village church. Imagine taking the gospel to a little village, sleepy church. Uh, He recounts how many people welcomed it, but some didn't. Outside the baker's one day, he was accosted by someone who said to him, a little bit like the voice that Eric used, you know, the hostility, you Christians, you are just a bunch of misfits and hypocrites, to which my friend said, you are correct, there is always room for one more. And how profoundly true that is. How are you? Fine. No, you're not. No one's ever fine. How are you? Oh, I live a good life. No, you don't. No, you don't. Let me see your heart. Nobody's fine. Nobody is sinless. 
Churches are places where heirs and graces are set aside, and everyone points to one kind of grace, the grace of forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. I can imagine Peter, James, and John questioning Jesus. Jesus, what on earth are you doing calling Levi? Why are you calling him? Now, let me finish up by uh, pointing us to the kind of people Jesus speaks to. And this is where it's something that we really need to heed. And as we go on through Luke's gospel, we will. In these early chapters of Luke's gospel, it is clear that Jesus spoke to all kinds of people. Peter, James, and John, they were partners in a fishing business. And now Levi, a tax collector, they are very different. The religious leaders, the crowds, the leper, the paralyzed man and his friends, all kinds of people. Churches should be places, and cities work against this. Churches should be places where there are people of different backgrounds, black people, white people, people from different parts of the world who feel strong fellowship with one another, poor people, rich people. And we must desperately long for that as a church. And it is happening. The good news of forgiveness is for everyone. But there's another way of thinking about the people Jesus spoke to. Jesus spoke the good news, but people need to hear and respond in repentance and faith. And the people who respond in repentance and faith are those who recognize their need of a Savior. The beginning of chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter saw what Jesus had done, he fell on his He fell to his knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Levi realized he needed forgiveness. And read with me from verse 30 of chapter 5. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Because I have come for them. Not that he's come simply for people of a certain group. I mean, it's illogical. It's not true. He's come from people who know their need. Whether you're the queen, who will say, I am a simple Christian, or the person who serves her her tea, the need of forgiveness, Who did Jesus speak to? Everyone. But who did he speak to in the sense of get through to? Who responded to his message? Not the self-righteous, not people who think they are righteous enough before God. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. That's why it's so hard to stick to this mission, because all sorts of people will not have it. So there we go. What was Jesus determined to do while he lived on the earth? He was determined to speak the good news of forgiveness of sins through his death. What have we learned in lockdown? Somebody's going to write a book called Lessons from Lockdown in 15 volumes. What have we learned? 
that we're desperate to get out of it, that humanity is awfully fragile, that we are perhaps disproportionate in our response, fearful of death, haunted by mortality, that other parts of the world are in desperate need when we are not. What have we learned as a church when everything else has been shut down that the Word of God, taught, spoken, preached, read, shared, explained, is what Jesus uses to build His church? And would any of us argue, looking at our world and the fearfulness of humanity, that the Christian gospel to make peace with God for all eternity, would any of us argue that that is not the most important message that anyone needs to hear? The answer to death and eternity, that men and women will lie down on their beds when they die and not reflect on their righteous life, but reflect on their wretched sinfulness and their beautiful Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these chapters in Your Word do impress upon us our priorities. We simply pray that we would heed them and obey them. And Lord, our prayer surely in light of this is that all of us listening, whether here in the room or at home, would know the true forgiveness that comes from faith in Jesus. Help us to turn to Him and trust if we have not done so. And to those we know and love who are not believers, and often these people are those we love the keenest, our families. We pray that we would be zealous in speaking to them of forgiveness, but that that effectual, powerful, supernatural call that is beyond us would come to their lives and convert them. For Jesus' sake. Amen.